elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids program. Cooper's going to walk you straight back there because he's all business. <laughs> Perfect. I'll hear about that later, by the way. Um, I was just handed this pressing and urgent news story. Uh, no women's Bible study until January 9th. So that announcement, ignore the first one. So they are not having a uh, Bible study. And I forgot like 10 things, but two of them are, we are still collecting warm clothes. I'm going to be delivering those on Wednesday. So if you didn't get a chance to bring them today for some of our homeless friends that we kind of do partnership with and have life with, um, call me and I'll get them from you somehow before Wednesday. We'd love to do that as well. And Sunday morning, this upcoming Sunday morning will be our last time gathering here for Advent prayer. We've taken the three weeks, um, last week, this week, and this coming week to spend time as a community gathering together and just really seeking the face of God. And so those who've been able to join us, we're very grateful. Invite everybody to come out next Sunday uh, at 930 right here in the space as we kind of create a very intentional time for us as a church to gather together and come before the Lord. You know, Advent is a season that invites us to do some of these things. It's a time in our calendar, in our life that invites us to rethink life, right? It's a, it's a sort of a cultural season that invites new things. And I think spiritually and, and biblically, there's an invitation for that as well, because Advent reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us that God loved us so much that he broke into our world through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is an always important thing for us to be moved by in our Christian faith. But he also reminds us that he is coming back. And the word Advent, as I've told you before, I told you last week, comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And there are two of them. There is the one where Jesus broke into humanity through the piercing cries of an infant in the manger. And then there is the promise of his return, the one that we look forward to in anticipation. And these natural rhythms invite us as, as believers to not get stuck in the here and now and the drawing of breath and the existing and the, just the living, but to live with deep gratitude for the breaking of Christ and with great anticipation that this is not the end, that there will be a time where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there'll be no more sorrow or hurt or pain, where he will come and restore all things. We live with incredible gratitude and gratefulness, and we live with great anticipation that this is not the end. Advent is a reminder of our movement as followers of Christ in between these two incredible pieces of history. We get hung a lot of times in the cultural significance of the holidays, and often we just get misguided on what really matters. And so I always try during this time to, to take a few weeks and just reorient our hearts, because we all know that this season, Christmas, whatever, is not about stuff and things and Christmas lights and presents, but instead it's about the incarnation, which is the inbreaking of of Christ into the world. The word in incarnation really means, the word incarnation really means the embodiment of God and the person of Jesus Christ, that God broke into humanity. Perfect, majestic, holy, wondrous God broke into humanity to rescue and to redeem your life. And we celebrate by overspending on each other. And part of this call of Advent is, is to step back and remember what it is that we're actually moved by and looking towards. Gratitude for this incredible movement of God and joyous anticipation that he is coming back and that he is a God who keeps his promises. And so for the next three weeks, or starting last week and kind of continuing forward, we're looking at three proclamations that we can make as followers of Christ that should be life-altering for us, that should be great, not just reminders, but movements in our heart. And the first we talked about last week, Jesus, you are the reason for our hope. 
And we talked about it not in terms of hope as we all gather together and, and have a Coke and sing Kumbaya, but hope in terms of that we were enemies of God. That without Jesus, we are hopeless, that we are sinful and ungodly and powerless. And that in that state, God stepped into our lives, the person of Jesus Christ, and redeemed us. That justification happens now, and it sets us free from the wrath of God that is to come. And that we have total and complete assurance in that promise. And we explored all those things. That ultimately, the hope we have, right, is that not all, that somehow all this world works out and everybody lives in peace and harmony, but that God will make all things new, beginning with the restoration of my heart. That he is the only reason that I have hope. That I am sinless, or that I am sinful and broken, and without him, I have nothing. He is the reason for our hope. And this week we're looking at this idea of love. And Tim and Gray read about it as they, they read scripture and talked about our Advent wreath. This candle that we celebrate today is what traditionally would be the candle that means love or reminds us of love. And, and the proclamation we make is, Jesus, you are the reason we love. And not just love each other, but the very reason that we understand love as we're going to explore today. But Jesus is the reason that we love. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be there, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 a little bit, but, but really 3, 16 through 19 is kind of where we're going to stay. Let me give you a quick little word about the book of 1 John, just kind of know where, where we're coming from. 1, 2, and 3 John. So this is, this is later on in your New Testament, kind of move towards the end, right? We're not talking about the gospel of John. 1, 2, and 3 John. We're in 1 John chapter 3. Uh, was written by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And the letters, John's letters, but especially the first one, were really, was really written for two main purposes. One, it was to encourage the believers and remind them about their salvation in Christ. All right, So it was written as a reminder that they are eternally secure in Christ. But it was also written to combat a largely growing and hugely problematic heresy that was happening in the early church called Gnosticism. In Gnosticism, the basic premise was there was a teaching going around that spiritual things, the spirit of our lives was completely and totally good and always was. But matter, all matter, whether it was of the earth or of our physical body is inherently evil. And so salvation comes from separating the spirit from the body. And that can only happen by what's called a secret knowledge or the Greek word gnosis, uh, which is where we get the idea of Gnosticism. That if you had this secret knowledge, you could separate spirit from body and be saved. All right. And only a few people had this secret knowledge and you weren't a Christian unless you understood and were given this secret knowledge. And so there's a huge division in the church between those that believe they were truly Christians because they had the secret knowledge of how to separate and live with life and body, spirit and body different, and those that didn't. And one of the teachings of the Gnostic teachers or heretics was that Jesus Christ was not fully human because the human body was sinful and therefore Jesus couldn't possibly be fully human. And so it went, goes against all kinds of Trinitarian principles and whatnot. But I mention all that only to say that part of John's letters were written to people that were discouraged, thinking, well, maybe I'm not really a believer, or maybe I'm not really a true Christian, because there's people over here that are telling me that if I don't have this secret knowledge thing, then I'm not, and that they are. And there was a lot of misunderstanding and confusion about assurance of salvation. And so First John is really written to combat that heresy and to remind those that salvation comes only 
from knowing Jesus and that they can rest in God's love. And John does it by talking about the extreme beauty of the love of God. And 1 John is this incredible picture, and it just paints chapter after chapter after chapter of God's extravagant, incredible, and relentless love. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So before we open that up and kind of explore it together, let's take a moment and let's pray. And let's invite God. Let's turn our hearts over to God and ask him to teach us about his relentless love. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your presence, your presence among us your presence in us and through us as followers of Christ, your Holy Spirit that literally dwells inside of us. Lord, I am the first to confess that I am inundated with a lot of other things in my world. Activities, pressures, stresses, things, the holidays don't help, more things, more people, more stuff. Um, Lord, and oftentimes what gets displaced is you. And you take a back seat so often in our lives, but especially around this time of year when you should be the first and foremost thing in my life. And I think a lot of us walk in here and we come to church in these holidays and we know what's important, but inside of our lives, there's just not a lot of room for you. And so, Lord, I prayed this morning as we open your word, one of the things that we be reminded of is our lives aren't, don't exist to create room for you. You are the very reason we exist at all. Lord, you are our life. You are everything. You don't deserve a place. You don't deserve just the first place. You deserve everything and all of it. You get all of me. And so, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would press that on our hearts, that we would just surrender all of us, heart, mind, body, soul, to you. Take a moment in your own heart, and as we just prepare to open God's word, ask the Lord to teach you or just remind you of something that you need to hear this morning. I don't know what that is, but just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know them, even if this is your very first Sunday with us, just pray for them. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified through your word and you would teach our hearts And we love you and we thank you for Jesus, for inbreaking into our world, literally, God, for Emmanuel, for God with us. Lord, turn our hearts to you this morning and teach us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, three verses, but I've got like a hundred things I'm points I'm going to try and make. So they're all going to be short and small and I'm going to miss a few, but that's just what we're doing. Um, And so... That's how this is going to work. And we're going to be a little bit in in 1 John chapter 4 because there's some stuff in there I want to mention. But we're talking about this premise of love, that Jesus, you are the reason we love, right? And not just we love each other, but the reason we know love, experience love, even have a kind of a, a, even a glimpse of what this word even means is because of Jesus. And what we're going to look at this morning is sort of how John paints that picture for some believers that are really wrestling with their own identity 
and their own secure kind of eternal promise in Christ. So let's look at that, and then I'll kind of walk us through some things this morning. So this is what John says uh, in 1 John 3.16. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and that we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So when we talk about love, right, when we talk about love, when we use this expression, we have to understand first and foremost that our understanding of love comes from Jesus, it doesn't come from anywhere else. It, it comes from Jesus himself. We don't have an understanding or a definition or even an expression of love outside of Christ. It's what we know. Everything else is a misinterpretation of the idea. And what John says first in 3.16 is he says, this is how we know what love is. So the very reason that you and I even understand love is because God did something for us. And that love originates with him. It doesn't originate with us. If we jump over to 1 John chapter, or verse 19, he says that we, or that we love because God loved us first. This love originates with God. It doesn't originate with humanity. It's not that you and I loved God and God said, okay, so I'm going to echo that and I'm going to love you in return, right? These are things that I've mentioned time and time again, but they're an important baseline for us to understand. The only reason we have a definition of love that works at all is because God showed us through Jesus Christ. And that originates with God. And that love is from God to us, not us to God, all right? So 4.10, actually, John says this. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So a couple of things, sort of a baseline strategy I want you to understand about love. This love, right, we understand it because of Jesus. This love originates with God. And this love is from God to us and not from us to God. And that's really important because we're, it's, what John's saying is that we're not sitting around saying, God, we love you so much and we will serve you and we will do whatever it takes. And God sits up in heaven and says, creation is working really hard for me. They love me. And so I am going to love them in return by sending my son, Jesus, to die for them or to remedy them or to come and love them. It was not a response from God to us. In fact, John reminds us that this was purely from God to us. Romans 5 last week says that we were powerless and we were ungodly and we were sinful. And it was in that state, while we could do nothing on our own, that God died for us, that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Now, the reason I want to make this point is because so often we think that this idea of love is somehow an expression that I come up with and that I have to give to God. But the reason we understand it at all is because Jesus died for us. It began with God and it's from him to us. Our returning of God's love is a feeble tiny, ridiculous response to an overwhelmingly perfect and complete picture of love. The origination of this love is perfect. God loves you perfectly. 
all-encompassing. God's love is all that we need. Our reflection of that love to him or the way that we love him is not that. It's broken. It's one-sided. It has a contingencies on it. It's human. The way that we love each other is broken. It's rooted in human origins. It's got contingencies that if you do this for me, I will love you. We were all taught in our lives that we can get people's affection and love by doing certain things. That if I clean my room and I take care of my business, my parents show me affection and gratitude. And oftentimes we misapply that picture of broken love to God. God, if I do this, I know you're pleased with me. God, if I do this, you will love me more. Love, the very reason that we know it is because God gave us this picture of it that originated with him and is from him to us and not us to him. And I want to use that as the baseline because we have to understand that my ridiculous attempt to love God is so broken compared to his complete encapsulating love for me that is not only all-encompassing, but is saving. It is a saving, redeeming, eternal love. God loved us so much in this. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 from last week, Christ died for us. It's complete and it's perfect. Our returning God's love will never be that. And John's very clear about that, right? He's very clear. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ lay down his life for us. And this love, this, this kind of love that I just laid the baseline out for has got two real things to it. One, it's a demonstration. It's a perfect demonstration that he laid down his life for us, that God loved us so much that he said, I'm going to demonstrate how much I love humanity by making a physical action that is tangible, seeable, and knowable. And I'm going to demonstrate that love for you. It's not just words, right? It wasn't enough for God just to say, I love you, creation, hear me say that. But his love was a physical demonstration. And we'll talk about this again in just a minute. But it was a tangible demonstration of what that looked like. Because you and I, we could never comprehend it. We couldn't comprehend a God that just says, I love you. What does that mean? Heck, I tell that to people all the time. Sometimes I mean it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I mean it in one way, sometimes I mean it in another. How would we as humanity understand how much God loved us if it were just some kind of tangible written or some kind of written word and not a tangible expression that while you were sinful and broken and dying and desperate and hopeless, I took my own son and I crucified him literally for you. That tangible demonstration is powerful because you and I can understand that possibly what that might take to lose something or to sacrifice something that you love so deeply to demonstrate to humanity your love for them. 
broken, sinful, dirty, wretched humanity that chooses itself over God, over its own creator, every moment of every day, with every breath and every thought, over and over and over and over and over again. That's the picture of my life, that I choose myself over God every moment of every day with every breath and with everything because I am in very nature deeply broken and sinful. And yet God in his incredible love, a love that I only understand because of what he did for me, says, I want to demonstrate how much I love you because you won't get it if I say it. And that love had to have an action because I was destined for hell. And God, through the person of Jesus Christ, substituted my sin for his grace. That he became sin for me, for you, so that in him we might know the righteousness of God. What 2 Corinthians 5 says. This love was a demonstration. But this love is also a call to replication. So not only did God say, listen, I'm going to show you how much I love you, but it was a call to replication. Look what uh, John goes on to say. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, not let us love, not let us love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This love is a call to replication. A couple things about that, right? It's a call to, not to replicate the specific action, right? But the sacrifice. So we're not called to, to literally physically die on a cross, but we're called to replicate the sacrifice that Jesus made. Jesus' love was so sacrificial. It was so selfless. And then he calls all through scripture, his followers, to love the world the way that he loves you. It's a call to sacrificial replication. And it's rooted in compassion and grace. Jesus died for you, not because you did anything to deserve it, but because God in his infinite and incredible love loved humanity, loved you, loved his creation, that he had compassion on you when you could do nothing about it. Last week, you are powerless. God's love for you, for me, is rooted in compassion and grace. We are called to replicate a love to each other, not just in this room, but to humanity with compassion and grace. The way that Jesus loves us. But notice there's no qualifiers there. They were called to love people that are easy to love. They were called to love those that never hurt us. They were called to love those that look like us or that come from the same background as us or that don't annoy us or make us crazy. Or those that live over there, wherever that is. This call to replication is without qualifiers. Because Jesus didn't have a qualifier for you or for me. With every thought of every day of every life, with every breath, I am sinful and broken. And yet God and his infinite, incredible, sacrificial love that originated with him and was from him to me saves me. And he calls me to love people in the same way. And that's crazy, hard, 
and I don't fully understand it, but this becomes the call of the person that says yes to Jesus. That if I understand this love, this baseline love, that I understand it because of what he did for me, that it started with him, not from me to him, but him to me, and I'm called to love people that way without qualifiers, I don't get to decide who gets it and who doesn't. I don't get to decide that you didn't do this for me or that I don't like the way you look or talk or represent and so I'm not going to give you the full extent of my love. This love is a demonstration. It's a call to replication that's rooted in compassion and grace. Even to those that you don't want to have compassion and grace on. Even those that are so hard to forgive, even those that you don't really even know where to begin with. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. And it's what he did for me. Jesus is the reason that we love at all. But notice, and the last thing I want you to see about this replication is that it is rooted in action. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. See, love is an action, isn't it? We know that. We make it a word, but it's an action. And our words are somewhat meaningless. Because I can tell you I love you, yet do nothing to demonstrate that. I mean, think about it in terms of that. What if God would have just said, creation, I love you, I promise. But gave us no physical demonstration of what that love looked like, no tangible thing to hold on to, no cross to point to, no redemption symbol for our sins, but that we just had this idea of a word that God loved us. Our love has got to be driven by action. And the example that John gives is that if you see your brother, right, which is literally any person in humanity, not your physical brother, literally humanity. You see your brother in need and you have no pity on him. How can the love of God be in you? Because it's one thing to say, I love you. And it's another thing to demonstrate that love with action. It's one thing to say, I care about you. And it's another thing to have my heart rooted in compassion and grace, want to work to demonstrate that love to you because that's what Jesus did for me. And it's a really interesting example that John uses because the church is divided. The split. Some believe because of this Gnostic heretical teaching that they're the only true Christians and they're over here and they have a secret knowledge that nobody else gets. And the only way you get that secret knowledge is if a knowledge teacher gives you that secret knowledge you got to work for it. And then it's revealed secretly to you and only you know if you have it and you got it and you are over here. And everybody else that gathers is over here and they don't have it. They want to have it, sort of. They don't even know if it's real and they're kind of mad at you for telling them you don't have it. And the church is split between those that think they're truly following Christ and those that think they're truly following Christ. What John says is, if you see your brother... He's got a need, and you don't have pity. The word is actually rooted in the idea of compassion on him. How is God's love in you? What that means is that if you're over here, and you look at these people, and you don't have deep grace and compassion for them, how is God's love in you, right? 
your secret knowledge is broken. The same thing. If you're over here and all you see is resentment and bitterness and anger towards those sort of moralistic perfection people that tell you that you're not actually right, how is God's love in you? And it's a legitimate question. You can break that out however you want to today, right? Put in your political hats if you want to, right? Put on whatever hat you want to put on. When we look at each other without compassion and grace, what John's telling us, how is a love of Christ even in you? It's a call to replication and it's driven by action. And it's one thing to say, hey, I, I don't, I care about you. And it's another thing to demonstrate it, to walk with someone, to spend time with them, to take care of a need, to engage them. But if you get these things, it leads us to two places, really. If you get this idea of love, right, that we understand it only because of what Jesus did for me, that originates with God, that it's from him to me and not me to him, and that it's a call of a demonstration and a call to replication, that God demonstrated so I would know what sacrifice looks like, and then he calls me to replicate that sacrifice, to the world, right? That selfless, lay down your life kind of loving sacrifice that says this is action and it's rooted in compassion and grace. Love people without using your mouth and use your life, right? If you get that, John says something very specific happens. It leads to something very specific. Verse 19, this then, right? If we get all that, then is how we know that we belong in the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So he said, if you get all this, it leads to two things. The first one is it leads to peace. This is then how we know that we belong to the truth. Peace. Because most of these people didn't understand that they belonged to the truth. They were being told that they didn't. There was a group that did and a group that didn't. And so everyone was confused. Am I a real Christian or I'm not a real Christian? Am I really a follower of Christ or am I not? And there was a lot of ambiguity and no certainty in their eternal security. And John says, you want to know how you can be at peace that you belong to the truth? Understand this about love and about God's love and about what you're called to. And it leads to peace. And we talked about it last week, eternal security, that you've been justified now and you will be held and purely held free when you stand before God in God's wrath. See, most of us think that when we live this way and we think about giving up our things, giving to our brother, loving people that are hard to love, that leads actually to anxiety, right? Because I don't know if I give this guy money or whatever, is he just going to go do something with it that I, I don't want him to go and do? Should I not do it? Should I acknowledge it? My brother keeps coming over. He takes everything I've got, but we keep inviting him over. I'm done having him over for the holidays. I don't know if I can love people like this. My one coworker drives me crazy. We're having a Christmas party. Can I not invite her? Right? All that causes us anxiety. But when we understand this idea of love, that it was all Jesus, and it was demonstrated to a creation, to you, to me, that continually with every breath and every thought and every moment of every day fights against all that God is. And yet God in his relentless, incredible, extravagant love continues to love you. When we get that that's how we're called to love people, 
without the judgment, without the movement, without the undertones, without the gossip, without all the things that their marriage is like or isn't like or who they are or what they did, without all that, that we love like Jesus loves you. You know what it leads to? It actually leads to peace. And you know why? Because I don't deserve anything, number one. And number two, everything I got belongs to the Lord. So my life, which is no longer mine, is Jesus. And I'm free to give it. And that actually leads to peace. You know what else it leads to? It leads to rest. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When you get all this, truly get it, understand it, it actually leads to peace and rest. Most of us think that loving people this way is going to lead to heartbreak, or if we love with our physical, tangible resources, it's going to lead to us being broke. But it actually leads to peace and rest. The problem is most of us have misdefined this word rest. We live in a world that is literally one thing to another, to another, to another, to another. And we incentivize our own lives by saying, if I can just do this for this season, then I will take a break or four more days of this and then I'll do this. Or if I can get to Christmas Eve, I've got four days of vacation. So I just got to plug and plug and plug and plug. And you get there and guess what happens? Vacation is over and the next day you're tired again and you need a vacation from your vacation. Why? Because we've misdefined rest. Rest is not a break from busyness. Rest is not getting two extra hours of sleep at night and hoping that sustains you. Rest for our soul is always spiritual. Right? Resting your physical body, temporary. You know what we find rest for our soul in? when we truly begin to embrace and live the kind of love that Jesus has lavished on us. Most of us don't think this way. We don't think that if I love people extravagantly, that if I love extravagantly, that if I sacrificially give of my stuff and my life to people, that if I demonstrate that, that if I pour myself out, we think I don't have enough left for me. And we are taught to make sure our tanks are full so that we can give, right? You got to take care of yourself. It's a lie. Nowhere in scripture does Jesus tell us that we got to make sure that we fill ourselves up and take care of our own needs. Actually, scripture tells you to pour yourself out and let Jesus fill you up. And there is a huge difference than us being overly guarded with our time because we're afraid of what it might look like if we give it all away and saying, Jesus, my time is yours. Give it all away and fill me up. The return of peace and presence is intangible. It's immeasurable. We've got a lot of choices to make over the next few weeks. The holidays sort of make those choices for us a lot of times. So we have a lot of choices, how we're going to see people, how we're going to act, what we're going to do, what we're going to buy, how we're going to treat our kids, how we're going to try and earn people's love or buy our own children's love with how much we decide we're going to spend on them and toys and stuff and things and whatnot. We got a lot of choices to make. The reality is that we have to decide if we're going to let our lives be defined by the fact that we know love because of Jesus. And that love should change our entire dynamic. How we see people, 
how we see our things, how we see our time. Because it all belongs to him. And we can fight him for control of it. And I'm not just talking about stuff. I'm talking about of our love because we're very, we, we're very protective of what we give people and where we let them in. We can fight him for control of it and live in continued states of distrust and disharmony and restlessness. Or we can just open the floodgates and say, you know what? Somewhere along the way, I'm probably going to get burned. But you know what? That's what I do to Jesus every day. And he keeps loving me. Yeah, you're going to love someone and they're going to hurt you. You're going to give something to someone and they're going to throw it away. You're going to make a sacrifice for someone and they're not going to get it. And you know what? So what? So what? Our call is never to manage the outcome of the return, but to just simply be givers of life and love. So err on the side of grace. Err on the side of love. And let us be a community that if our giant fault is that we loved too much and that came back to haunt us, so be it. I'd rather do that than stand before God and say, well, we just weren't sure, so we held it all in. I'd rather stand before the Lord and go, God, I I laid it all out there and I got taken advantage of a thousand times. But we try to love how you love us. In your family, what does that mean to you? It's an extravagant outpouring. This table is an extravagant outpouring of God's love. It is an outpouring of love for creation that just in a matter of days would crucify him. Of disciples, people that he'd walked the earth with for three plus years that would run away as soon as the crowd showed up. Everybody scatters. Even one of his closest and dearest people would betray him and sell him out. Peter would stand before him in the night. The very night he was being held before these Roman soldiers and he would deny he even existed. You want to talk about being burned? The life of Jesus. He didn't quit. He just went to the cross for you and for me. This table is that incredible, unbelievable picture that on that night, Jesus gathered with his disciples. He took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after taking the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant, that whenever we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this demonstration is exactly what you have given us to remind us of your incredible love. And God, we confess, or I confess, that I am such a poor steward of your love, that I am selfish, that I'm prideful, that I'm arrogant, that I am sinful and powerless and ungodly. And you love me anyway. And you continue to love us in spite of all the ways that we fail you, all the horrible decisions that we make, have made, all the ways that we have let you down and the people around us that we have let down. You love us anyway. And God, you call us to be extravagant with the way we love people, to be forgivers. To be extravagant with the way we love our things, 
with our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask that as we celebrate this table today and as we close our time in worship, you would change our hearts and attitudes right now. You would reorient us. Because, Jesus, you are the reason we love, period. The reason we know it, the reason we can even do it, is because of you. And so, Lord, let us take that seriously. How does that change the next weeks of our life? And then how does that change us for the rest of the time that we draw breath? So, Lord, hear our cry this morning as we celebrate this table together and as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I invite our servers to come forward, I want to remind you that we take communion here by means of intinction, which is a simple, fancy word of saying as you come down to the front,